Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and I'm so happy that you're here with us and uh, getting the natural resources you need to recover your child from the symptoms of autism. And remember that the definition of recovery is to regain health. And this episode is sponsored by my free online workshop that I've created for you so that you can help get the, the full understanding of all the four stages that are necessary to recover a child from the symptoms of autism. And it is based on what I did to recover my own son uh, from his symptoms. And this was after I was told that he would not recover. And so I like to share as much as I can with you as a parent so that you can, can do the best possible job that you can and get the best possible results for your own child. And that free online workshop is called The Four Stages to Naturally Recover from the Symptoms of Autism. Stage one is healing the gut. Stage two is natural heavy metal detoxification. Stage three, clearing the co-infections, including mold, Lyme, and strep. And then stage four is brain support and repair. So please go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop. That's just free workshop, no spaces in between, and register now. And today we have yet another exciting episode. Um, This topic today comes up a lot. We're going to be talking about genetic SNPs, S-N-P's, but it's pronounced and referred to often as SNPs because it stands for a big long word, nucleotide poly, single nucleotide polymorphisms. But what's important to you is how these genes are associated with autism and your child. There are over 800 genes associated with autism and all of them have been randomized out in clinical trials, which tells us that autism is largely environmental. So however these genes do not define us, they can guide us toward healing if we know susceptibilities that we might have and how to support those. Um, so we have a specialist in the genetic steps with us here today. And Dr. Becker has joined us before uh, if, you, if uh, you've uh, listened in, uh, been listening for a while. So I'm going to give you her brief background in case you're not familiar with her. Dr. Kendra Becker has uh, integrated a doctor of naturopathy and advanced practice nursing degree to provide the best possible care for her patients. Dr. Becker understands the importance of integrating conventional and holistic medicine and the importance of combining therapies appropriately. Prior to becoming a physician, Dr. Becker spent 10 years practicing as an ICU nurse for both adults and children, specializing in cardiac surgery and cardiac anomalies. That was before studying naturopathic medicine. Dr. Kendra Becker believes in healing through genetics and specialties in treatment of conditions such as asthma, autism, allergies, and eczema, as well as fertility. And Dr. Becker integrates both a conventional background with a homeopathic, naturopathic, herbal, and dietary treatments. Dr. Becker, thank you again so much for being here with us. I'm really excited about today's show and um, excited to have you back. Well, thanks so much for having me back. I'm super excited to be here again. So these uh, genetic SNPs, 
Um, and since I've already referred to them, we'll we'll just go ahead and refer to those. Uh, I think through the show is easiest, unless you have some other referral referral you'd like to use. Oh, and uh, for you listening, I have uh, created a page for this episode, and I'll link to things and uh, and some explanations too as well at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash thirty two. Just the numbers thirty two. So that is where you can find the show notes for today's episode. Um, so some some favorite. SNPs and SNPs are, are that are most common and can be associated and supported supported in recovering autism. One of them um, commonly comes up. I mean, many people have you've heard about it, um, but they might not know that much about it or what it really means to them. And as, of course, we re, it's really important with the things that we're talking about today too to show what types of things that we can do with natural ways like diet or supplementation that can be helpful in supporting these genetic SNPs so that um, so that they aren't affecting the child in a negative way and we can help to balance the system. So Dr. Becker, you know, if you if you want to explain a little bit about SNPs and how they're affected, how they're affecting autism before we go into maybe some of the specifics, is that a good place to start maybe for our, our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, I really think your description at the beginning of the show was was the absolute best, right? There are 800 genes that they have associated and correlated with autism, and 100% of them have been kind of, uh, you know, dropped from that list because we, when we look at autism, it is so largely environmental. And it's the same thing really with genetics and genetic predisposition. You know, our genes do not define us, right? But they can certainly, especially, you know, with, with the type of medicine I practice, can really help guide uh, me down the right, you know, pathway to recovery for a family. And so, you know, what I want to say, too, is we're, we're going to spend this show looking at very specific SNPs that have very, very specific jobs. But as you know, you have to look at the whole child or the whole person as an individual and looking and, and you know, basing medicine and, and practice off of one little SNP is certainly not going to do anybody, a dis, uh, it's going to do people a disservice. So we really need to be absolutely helpful. But Having that be said, looking at a specific, you know, we're going to look at a few today just because of the confinement of, of the show, because we could spend days on each of these, you know, beautiful little genes. But, you know, today we're going to look at some and, and really give your audience some nice practical tips to be able to ask the right questions or possibly direct healing for their own family, you know, down a, down a path that maybe a doctor or provider hasn't explored. And so, you know, by doing that, we have a much better opportunity to help, you know, full and total recovery as opposed to just making sure one little gene pathway works right. You know that. And I'm so I'm also wondering, too, like it might be good to explain just briefly um, with the time we have again um, to to know how that they're affected by the environment, like how these polymorphisms, these mutations and things can happen. Do you have, uh, you know, that's probably a very long explanation, but can, do you have a, a, I guess, sort of a nutshell explanation for that? Well, sure. Every gene is different, right, as far as their environmental modulation. So a couple of the ones that we're going to talk about today, one, my most favorite gene, as you know, is, is COMT, methyltransferase, right? So that's basically the garbage man of the uh, nervous system. So it picks up all the used up neurotransmitters and then either recycles them or eliminates them. 
So if that gene is not working properly, either it's down-regulating, meaning it's not picking up any of those neurotransmitters, or up-regulating, it's picking up way too many, then we're going to certainly have imbalance problems. Now, with COMPT in particular, we know that individuals that have up-regulating COMPT can also be estrogen-dominant. And we know that our world is full of, you know, xenoestrogens and estrogen, you know, like substances that can certainly affect this gene, you know, to continue or further upregulate it. So another good example is the PON1 gene. That's my third favorite gene. And that one has to do with how the body metabolizes organophosphates, right? So if we lived in a beautiful world that had a, a pesticide-free or organophosphate-free environment, this wouldn't even be a gene that we would have to address. So, you know, that, those are just two really simple examples as to how the environment can, can really affect how these genes work. So uh, do you want to start with, um, you know, a few that we looked at uh, talking about, of course, is the MTHFR, the, the COMP, mm-hmm. COMT, the MAO, uh, <sighs> And then also uh, some reactions from histamines. Um, those might be really helpful yeah. uh, too. So you started talking about comp. Do you want to start there or would you prefer to start with the MTHFR? Okay. You yeah, know, actually, uh, yeah, this might be a good place for, for us sure. to go ahead and take our, our break. That way um, we'll, uh, we'll kind of have a clean slate. We'll come back and we'll get into these. Uh, these genes and these genetic SNPs and um, what they can mean for your child and how you can help your child in the recovery process by having this knowledge to, again, share with a practitioner that that you may be seeing or sharing with um, or knowing about the dietary uh, and uh, supplemental help that uh, you can give your child as well. So stay with us. We're going to take a short break. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we are talking about genetic SNPs and what they can mean for what they're associated with and supporting the recovery of autism. We have Dr. Kendra Becker here with us, who is a specialist in this field. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the COMT uh, or the COMPT um, uh, genetic SNP first. So, Dr. Becker, why don't you go ahead and um, give some explanation on that? You called it the garbage man of neurotransmitters. I love that. But uh, Again, some some listeners might not even know what a neurotransmitter is. So let's go ahead and explain, you know, what that means to right off the bat. Sure, absolutely. So COMPT is our, is an abbreviation for this particular enzyme, which is called catechol-O-methyltransferase, which is why we call it COMPT. Um, and basically what it does is it, it kind of, it just adds and subtracts a, a particular type of biochemical group to another molecule. And so what that does, those what are called catechol nuclei, um, they influence how the neurotransmitters such as dopamine, norepinephrine, and again, estrogens in the body are, are kind of, you know, utilized by the brain and the nervous system. And so, you know, we see, and, and you know, what I want to too is, is to bring up is, is SNPs, right? Single nucleotide polymorphisms are natural, normal genetic variability. So the problem is, is when there is some sort of abnormal environmental influence that then stresses these genes in a way that they are not able to be used properly in the body. So, you know, again, if we lived in the Garden of Eden where the air was pure and we had no organophosphates or xenoestrogens, you know, nobody would be studying these genes. And so I think that's really important to, you know, to really look at. 
And then I always tell the story about my grandmother who lived to 96, who was, you know, who had ter- I thought happened to look at her genetics before she died, but she was the same weight uh, the day she graduated from high school as the day she died. She had all of her teeth and, you know, genetically she just looked terrible, but she did all the right things environmentally. She grew her own vegetables. She moved her body every day. You know, she traveled the world and she read the Bible and, and a ton of books. So I want to, you know, I want everybody to be clear that our genes don't define us and that we have, a, you know, what we can control in our environment, I think, is a much greater implication, which is why this, the genetic medicine is so huge in autism. But anyway, getting back to comps, um, you know, when we look at genetic variations, there, there is diversity in these genes. And so, you know, what we want to, you know, make sure that we're doing right is that we're degrading the dopamine, the norepinephrine, and other neurotransmitters and utilizing them in the right way that the body needs to be able to utilize them. So if we degrade our dopamine too slowly, we have high levels of dopamine, right? If we degrade our dopamine too quickly, we have low levels of dopamine. And so the way I describe patients uh, how COMPT works is you have two types, two types of people that struggle with the COMPT mutation. They're either the Eeyores or they're the Tiggers, right? So those that are degrade dopamine too slowly are the Tiggers, right? Like we all know Tigger, you know, can't keep on task. He's always disrupting things. You know, things fall over, they break. And everybody loves him anyway because he's just so amicable. And then on the other side, if you're degrading your dopamine too quickly, you have Eeyore, who we all know is chronically depressed but still immensely lovable. And so, you know, that's a really good picture for my patients to be able to get an idea of how that comp gene really works. Now, how it affects kids with autism is exactly the same way. So when we have kids that are the, you know, what I call the runners, the ones that are unsafe, that feel unsafe. I've had kids, you know, run out of my office in, in, in a, my office is on a busy street into traffic or the kids that escape from the house in the middle of the night because they can't sleep. Those sometimes we can, you know, help them regulate that gene. And it makes, uh, you know, a lot of sense. The other thing with comp is now because of the way that it works and it's influenced by estrogen, we know that somebody who has an upregulated comp mutation can have trouble with estrogen excess, right? Whether they're boys or whether they're girls. And so one of the things that can be really, really effective in supporting this particular gene is to make sure that we have, and where do we go with this care in 100% of the time? A healthy, happy, healed gut, right? Because right. if all this is, is working right in the body or in the gut, then we know things are going to work right in the brain and the nervous system. And so um, we do see comp quite frequently in um, individuals with ADD, ADHD, and mood swings. So the comped up regulator will be the individual that goes from zero to 60, you know, as far as being upset about something. And somebody that is, you know, has normal comped uh, functioning generally tends to be more even keeled in their um, uh, personality or their ability to really manage stress. And so here's where it gets complicated, right? Because if you have uh, an MTHFR mutation and a comp mutation, you have to be really, really careful about how you supplement, you know, a variety of supplements, namely B vitamins in, in those types of individuals. Because if you have trouble with degrading dopamine and you're moving around your methyl groups, which is basically, you know, B vitamins, you can have an adverse reaction to those B vitamins. And so that's also really important to kind of look at is that it's never ever, and you know this better than anybody, it's never ever a one size fits all. And it's also a never ever, you know, throw stuff at the wall and hope something sticks. 
you know, when you're looking at genetics, you have to be very, very deliberate and targeted with how you're actually going to address the genes or the gene groups or the gene combinations because you could actually make symptoms worse in an individual. Right. This is when sometimes uh, commonly a parent might see they'll start with um, just giving their child some uh, methyl B12 and their kid will, uh, they always say, go off the rails, meaning they, their kid, their child just gets wild and hyperactive and they can't calm down. And it's because it, it was too much too quickly and, it, and the body can't, can't process it all um, until it's supported more again with doing some gut healing work. And I know that glutathione is really important too in that, in that process, which we can talk about more when we get to the MTHFR, um, which is all about this whole process. Um, So yeah, that's really good to know um, for parents as well, that B B vitamins you have to just be careful with, especially in the very beginning when you're just starting out with supplementation. Oh, absolutely. And in many cases, you you know, of course, you know, I've been doing this for 12 years now. And so you know what happens with when you have kind of a a very, very narrow subspecialty like I do, you end up seeing other doctors referrals because they just have come to an end of the road with that particular patient. And I very often see exactly the scenario that you had just described. a doctor or even a parent has decided that, you know, the, there's low levels of serum B12 or based on genetics, the child looks like they need some B12. They have a, almost an adverse reaction to a vitamin, which is really scary. And so in those cases, sometimes what you have to do is you start maybe with B vitamins that don't include B6, B9, and B12. Or in a lot of cases in my practice, what I do, if, you know, if gut healing is, is working in the right direction, is you start with just mineral supplementation. Right, because something like magnesium, for example, is a very, very important cofactor in how uh, the Compenzyme reaction works. And if you have an imbalance in methylation, you know, uh, based on your MTHFR, you know, mutation or your expression, that can profoundly influence the stability of the comp gene. And so you can see severe fluctuations in, in mood, and that's why you see that reaction. Exact. I love that expression, off the rails. Because then what happens is that, you know, the, the child, you know, their behavior normalizes. And so a lot of times the parent or the doctor says, well, we'll just give them some more, um, you know, and that can be really, you know, n- not the best, you know, trajectory for treatment. Right. I, I teach muscle testing in my program, and I think I, I, I want parents to have that ability to be able to know daily what what the needs are of the child, because especially as we're detoxifying Um, things can change every single day and our needs can change. So it's important to know that too. We're going to take a short break here. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. Please stay with us. We Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And today we are talking about SNP genes or genetic SNPs as they are related to autism and how they can be associated and supported in recovering autism when you, as a parent, know how to do that. And so we have Dr. Kendra Becker here, who is a specialist in genetic SNPs, and um, we just finished talking about the COMPT enzyme, and now we're going to get into the MTHFR. Now, this is a very, very commonly heard or known uh, enzyme or um genetic SNP that is um, dealt with in autism. It comes up a lot. And um, I know Dr. Becker will will explain what it is to our audience as well. But I know that you found out about it way back when and you're on your own personal um, journey when you found out there were some health issues that you were 
um, you were experiencing and then it came out eventually to be MTHFR. Do you want to share briefly about that before we go into it? Sure, absolutely. You know, I had been doing MTHFR really since the research had come out about 15 years ago. And here's, you know, here's what happens with medicine, right? There's really an evolution and it's that kind of change, love, forgive kind of, of attitude that we have in medicine. We do what we know how to do best. So in my own case, I knew I had an MTHFR mutation, and I did what what the research had showed at that time, which was I was taking five milligrams of, of synthetic folic acid. And the research behind that is, and I, I'm saying this now, it's almost laughable, is that you know the the, the theory was because we really were operating in theory is that well if you give a ton of folic acid, it'll just blow through the pathway and something will get absorbed, right? I mean that's literally the theory we were operating on. So I did it myself. I, I really believed in, in the research. So it turns out because of, of what I had, you know, done with my own health, it resulted in two, I had two late miscarriages. I got pregnant very easily. I was pregnant for 14 weeks and I miscarried. And then I got pregnant again shortly after that mis, uh, uh, and miscarried again at 14 weeks. And so, you know, as, as a mom, it totally plays with your head. I had never been pregnant like 100 days. So after my second miscarriage, I really was having kind of a, a come to Jesus moment with myself. Like, you know, do I want to be a mother? Like, do I need to, you know, do I want to adopt babies? Like, where am I at with all of this? And I was, I'll never forget the day I was sitting at the desk, at my desk, and I got an email from uh, the supplement company of the supplement that I was taking with my prenatal with this high dose folic acid. And at that time, a battery of research had come out showing that giving people with MTHFR all this folic acid actually caused inflammation, probably jammed up the folate, the folate receptors and didn't allow for any of the conversion that we thought we were getting by this high dose folic acid. So lo and behold, and it was one of those like change, love, forgive kind of, of moments, lo and behold, I switched my prenatal to a methylfolate with the proper ratios of B12 and B6 and, and um, I think some biotin and choline and started taking that prenatal. And five months after that, I got pregnant with my daughter and had a full term, you know, birth. My kids were both born at home. And then three years later, I thought, well, two years later, I thought, well, gee, I want to have another baby. And, you know, in my history of miscarriages and this, that, and the other thing. And sure enough, I get pregnant right away to the point where I walked into my office and I said to my husband, I need a bottle of prenatals. And he says, well, who's that for? And I said, it's for me. And he goes, well, we didn't even try. <laughs> yes. Yeah, kind of. It kind of just works that way sometimes. And, and then I had my son. And, and so my son was born at home in a beautiful water birth, right? So he's this big, robust, eight-and-a-half-pound baby. So I pick him up and I hold him. And the first thing I do, right, because of the medicine that I practice, is I flip my kid over. And what do I see but a sacral dimple in his little fanny, which is an indicator of MTHFR. Ah, oh, so that's a anyway. good tip, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Wow. So, and, well, but, yeah. but because of all the knowledge, you know, that I've had and, and my own struggles, you know, what I did with my own kids is I, ne you know, just like we're talking about today is I never, well, I made an attempt anyway to do, you know, to, to not influence these genes in a way that could potentially impair their health. Now they're little, so, you know, we'll see what their health outcomes are as they grow up, but, you know, so far so good. And we just, you know, pray about that a lot too. <laughs> Well, and you have the knowledge. I mean, I always say that's the key is to right. know what you can do to support things. So 
so uh, would you describe for, you know, for a parent listening right now who might be thinking, well, if, does my child have the MTHFR? And if they do, what does it, what does that mean for my child um, with the whole methylation right. issue? And, um, and then of course, you know, things that, that they could do to help support that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what's interesting about MTHFR, you know, we talked about there were 800 genes that were randomized out of any kind of, you know, looking for that magical autism gene. However, interestingly enough, MTHFR was found in some form in 98% of kids that, that do have autism spectrum disorder. So it is definitely one of the more prevalent genes that we see with relationship to autism. So there are, you know, certainly by testing for blood or even doing a saliva test, you can certainly get the genetic information as to whether they have it or whether they don't. Now, there are other physical symptoms that do appear with an individual that is expressing their MTHFR mutation. And so one of them, like I described with my son, is a sacral dimple, you know, one of those little, you know, a little dimple that you see in between your little baby's butt cheeks um, that can be apparent as, you know, from literally their first day of life. The other things we see that are very, very common and correlated with MTHFR mutation is lip tie and tongue tie in kids. And that's generally picked up pretty early because babies struggle and moms too struggle with the breastfeeding relationship if there is a lip tie or a tongue tie. So again, we know that there's not, there can be signs there as well. The other thing that we see is um, this old myth. It's called a sugar bubble. And um, a sugar bubble is found in between the little eyebrows. And it's like a little blue line. A little blue line. Okay, that's good to know, too. You know, we're going to take a very short break right here. And then when we come back, we'll continue a little bit more with this MTHFR. So please stay with us. We will be. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Today we are talking about genetic SNPs. And we have Dr. Kendra Becker-Musante with us. And we, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the MTHFR gene. And so I'd like to, to finish up with that at least before we move on to the next one. So, Dr. Becker, would you mind continuing where we left off with that? Sure. So like I had said, there are some physical attributes that are associated with MTHFR if a parent isn't interested in, in doing, you know, any kind of blood or saliva testing. And then there's also clearly a lot of metabolic imbalances that can happen with MTHFR. And so MTHFR, you know, just as a review, is the methyl tetrahydroxyfolate reductase enzyme. And so basically the way that that enzyme works is it uh, ultimately it helps people detox, right? And so if that enzyme is not working properly, your detox pathways are, are impaired. Uh, it has a very, very small role in the conversion of uh, folate into a methyl folate, which is the usable form of, of folate in the body. But ultimately, looking at, at a more global picture, it helps our bodies detox, and it helps our bodies basically make glutathione, which is the only thing that our cells have in order to be able to protect themselves from what we call oxidative stress or environmental stress. And so clearly, when you have a child, you know, using an, autis- an autistic child is a great example because we know their immune system is out of balance. So if you have an MTHFR mutation there is an, and your levels of glutathione are low, what ends up being elevated is inflammation. And so if you have high levels of inflammation in an immune system that's just primed to react at absolutely everything, clearly that can be a cocktail for, you know, tons and tons of intolerances for everything, 
for food, for sound, for environment, for, you know, the way your socks feel, for all of those things. And that those are just the physical symptoms. And, you know, the, the other things are, too, is, is that you're intolerant to the way that your body metabolizes pharmaceutical medications or in even some cases vitamins. And so that's really, you know, the take-home message as far as, um, you know, methylation goes or, or this particular MTHFR enzyme. And so, you know, really what we like to do with individuals that are positive for MTHFR, and you know in healing, Karen, like we, we do more healing by taking stuff away from people than we ever right. do with adding it. And um, so the first thing that we do, you know, just like with my own personal story, is you just avoid folic acid, you know, which is uh, much easier said than done. It's in almost all processed grains. It's in a lot of pharmaceutical medications, and it can be even found in household products. And so you have to be really careful about making sure that you don't have any folic acid that you're consuming if you struggle with this particular gene. Um, and then the other thing is, is make sure you're getting enough, you know, usable forms of folate in, out of your diet, you know, and that can be in the form of dark green leafy vegetables, you know, for example, which you can juice or steam or whatever. And the other thing you have to be really careful about with individuals with MTHFR is you have to be very, very gentle and deliberate with how you're going to help and support their detox. Because what happened, or what did happen originally when all of the research came down the pike with MTHFR and everybody decided that they were going to be a specialist, is all they did is they pushed a ton of glutathione on these patients and a ton of methylfolate and B12. And if, again, if that pathway is not working properly, basically what you're going to end up with is a bottleneck. And all mm -hmm. of that stuff kind of gets stuck and congested in the liver and the kidneys, in the skin where we see rashes and eczema and all kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, we want to be really, really careful. It's definitely, you know, a, a gene that we need to be, you know, gentle with when we're trying to support detox in an individual. And I hate to beleaguer the point here, but we may end up back at magnesium, right? So sometimes <laughs> with these patients, right, you can't give them high-dose methylfolate because they don't tolerate it. And if you give high-dose methylfolate, sometimes you can alter what should be a proper balance of B12 in that individual. And so then you can't give high-dose B12 too because you know that that can affect the mood in a child. So again, sometimes you have to really aggressively work on gut healing or sometimes you have to start on, on a completely different pathway and just support the body with minerals or, you know, maybe do a little bit of, of gentle detox with uh, charcoal or bentonite clay, which we know is really good at stopping up bugs that live in the gut and things like that. And that you have to be very, very deliberate. And, and we've all, you know, all of us that work, you know, with the autism community have seen kids that have had, you know, untoward or, or pretty terrible adverse reactions to very, very gentle treatments because, you know, certain genetic aspects of, of their genome weren't addressed properly. Right. Yeah, you have to be very sensitive with, with each child. They're so unique, as you said earlier. And, and it's important that parents know to go slow and steady. A lot of people get really, you know, and, and even doctors, I see they'll, they'll get really excited about something like, okay, let's get them on this. And they'll flood the system and it and and you know and as a parent I remember you know you're eager to see changes in your child so you think okay well what if I you right. know just gave them a little bit more but you know that's where the muscle testing um and I can I can link to my muscle yeah. testing video for for um 
our listeners, I'll, I'll put that on the page again. I'm, I've created a page that I'll add that to. It's not there yet at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 32, just the numbers 32, which will be the show notes for this episode. Um, because I think it's, it's important for the parents to have, you know, their own skills at home because, you know, you've got to be able to know how to, to dose your child properly. And uh, a lot of people just really don't know how to do that. And a lot of doctors don't know how to do that. So this is a, a good way to, to help with those indications. And um, I'd like to move Absolutely. on we're, we're, we, um, to uh, the PON1 because I know that that can be very responsible um, in, in some vaccination reactions. And so if you know that there are susceptibilities to certain things ahead of time, then you, you know, can make some, some varied and educated decisions for your child. So could you talk about that? Sure. So PON1 protects basically against bacterial infection by destroying bacterial signaling molecules. Okay, so it does contribute to the body's innate immunity. So what's really interesting is the way that this gene works, you know, when it's working properly, is it protects our bodies from, you know, the damage that something that organophosphates can cause. And so organophosphates are found in um, common ho- household products like dishwashing soap and um, dish detergent, but they're also found in pesticides that are sprayed on, you know, your neighbor's lawn or the lawn that your kids play soccer on and things like that. And so, you know, what we want to remember with PON1 is that if a child is expressing that gene, it's very, very possible that they could have a, a reaction, that among a bunch of other genes, of course, to a, a variety of vaccines because of the way that it works. Okay, and that might be a, a great place. That'll be a great place for us to come back, how the vaccination will work on a system with a possible yep. genetic SNP on the PON1. So we need to take a short break right here. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. Stay with us. We will- Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and you're, we are talking today with Dr. Kendra Becker about genetic SNPs. And we are discussing now, for the break, we got into the PON1. The PON1 has some effect on the reactions that your child might have to vaccination. So, uh, Dr. Becker, could you um, kind of start where you left off there? I know this is really, really interesting information for parents and very valuable for them to know about. Sure. So the stu- one of the studies that I quoted in, in a lecture that I given back in October um, was actually an evidence-based, you know, study that showed that children less than two years old, especially those that were homozygous for PON1, so that means they had two copies of this gene, would are had an increased predictability to be susceptible to organophosphate toxicity. And so, like we had said before the break, is the organophosphate is basically um, it, it's a chemical. I mean, it's found in in uh, pesticides and weed killers and, and some of our household products if we're not careful. And so those things, organophosphates are found in vaccines. So if you have a child with this type of, of um, genetic predisposition, then you certainly are at increased risk for having a vaccine reaction. Um, and so there's also tons and tons of research, too, and I'll be happy if anybody's interested in, in looking at the studies themselves. And sometimes we get really buried into the study and forget the logic part, but, you know, there is, there is a twofold, you know, system here. But there's several studies that show that individuals that increase, have increased PON1 expression have IB, uh, IBS or IBD type symptoms. And so what do we see in our kids with autism all the time? But, you know, 
raging bowel problems, all of it, terrible constipation or leaky, leaky, you know, diarrhea. And so, you know, we know there too that a lot of vaccine reactions are identified by parents as saying there was a very, very, you know, succinct and abrupt change in my child's bowels after XYZ vaccine. And so I think that that's just, you know, amazing research that we have that I hope, you know, going forward will pave the way to allow parents to get medical exemptions from these vaccines based on genetic predisposition. Well, yeah, if you know your your child is susceptible, I mean, that's where it comes in for a lot of, of people who already have one child with autism and they're looking at you know, is, is there something else that I can do to help prevent that with, with my other child or a future child? So that could, those could be really good. Um, we'll make sure um, before we end the show, I know that you have some areas that you liked for genetic testing, and it can be pretty simple, just saliva tests, um, ones that, that you prefer that are a little bit more accurate um, to use for a parent. So uh, we'll make sure that uh, we get that information out. In fact, do you, do you want to mention that now? Sure. So as far as genetic testing, I use any, you know, what happens in my practice is, uh, for the most part, parents will come in with genetic results because they've already done it um, either for another provider or for their own edification through a company like 23andMe or um, Ancestry.com, both of which are adequate. That's not generally what's really helpful to me as a provider. So what I do is I, I will recommend to my patients that you take that information and then you upload it into other software, either through a company called Stratagene or another company called MTHFR Doctors, which gives us, a, you know, a very health-based report. Now, as we know, there's like 8 billion genes in the genome, right? About, you know, 4,000 of those separate us from apes. And about half of those have implications on our health. And about 200 to 400 of those that we can actually, you know, make, you know, and recommend, you know, changes with. So it's not a lot of genes that we're really talking about per se that we as humans have influence over to be able to help, you know, and, and guide patients. So you don't need your whole, I mean, you can look for all kinds of stuff on there. Like you can look on the chromosome for your genes or genetic predisposition for blue eyes or curly hair, but that's not really going to change your health trajectory. The ones that are going to change your health trajectory are the ones that are most important. And those companies do a really great job of giving you a really concise reference that you can be able to look at. So the strategy and the MTHFR doctor are the two companies that you would suggest? Yes. Okay, good to know. And I will add that to the show notes as well. Okay, great. Is there anything more we should talk about with PON1 before... um, before movement, I know we're running through here quickly. We we have so many um, so many great things to share with you. And, and Dr. Becker has said she will come back with us in the future. Um, so, Dr. Becker, would you like to go? Is there anything more that you would like to say about Pon One before we move on? There's only one more thing that I want to say is uh, omega sixes decrease Pon One. Okay, so a lot of times what happens is is parents are, are uncomfortable using fish oil, you know, that comes from fish due to toxicity in the ocean, this, that, and the other thing, and they choose an omega six supplement for their child in the hopes that that child can convert the omega six to the omega three. However, omega sixes like linolenic acid, for example, um, can actually decrease the the um, ability for the body to actually utilize this to eliminate organophosphates. So I would say, you know, overwhelmingly, if you have upon one mutation or think you do, definitely stick with omega-3 and, and stay away from omega-6. 
So that's really good information. And also people don't know, you know, that, that omega-6s do naturally, they kind of battle in the body for omega-3s and so they will help to reduce the omega-3s, the necessary needed omega-3s even further. So, and we get so much of these omega-6s with the bad fats and things. So really be careful about, um, you know, the foods you eat or when you eat out, you know, avoiding things like canola oil, et cetera, that, um, that are going to be, um, you know, causing a little bit more of those, those omega-6 uh, issues for you. Okay, great. Um, so I'm thinking Absolutely. too, and only fifty percent of people can even convert because we're, you know, we started cooking our meat after we became cavemen, and you know, we don't have the delta six desaturase that actually does help with the conversion. So I'm with you on that. I would overwhelmingly choose omega threes over omega sixes any day of the week. Right, and it's good too to, to balance. When my, I remember when my son was was tested at one point and I had been giving him a high quality omega-3 actually I found out through natural allergy elimination in another episode that um, that his body wasn't metabolizing properly and so we cleared some channels uh, through that and it was really helpful but um, those omega-3s uh, they, they need to be able to be processed by the body too so um, it's good yeah. when you're using them with, with any fats you want. Again, I'll refer back to this muscle testing video, making sure you're giving the right dosages. My son ended up, you know, needing, um, and he was only at the time, I think he was about 13 or 14 in the, the, the pediatric doctor that we were seeing at that time who kind of specialized in autism a little bit there too was saying he needed at least 2,000 milligrams a day, which is higher than a lot of people. But when, when you have autism, you know, again, things Things vary per child, per age, size, and need. So um, it's not, again, a one-size-fit-all for everybody, um, but there are certain things that most of us need uh, and our children need. We need to take another short break here. Please stay with us. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. and we. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. Uh, you're listening. Uh, I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we are talking about uh genetic SNPs and we have Dr. Kendra Becker here and I will link to Dr. Becker's website as well. It's Dr. KendraBecker.com, but it will be linked to at the show notes at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 32, just the numbers 32. We have one more thing with just a little bit of time left here that we definitely want to get into, and that is histamines. So Dr. Becker, would you go ahead and, um, and, and share a little bit about that with the time we have left? Sure. So there's, there is a particular gene that's responsible for controlling histamine, and that one's called DAO, or diamine oxidase enzyme. Um, and that's supposed to, you know, the, the backstory on that is, of course, blood is supposed to be very, very low in histamine. We're not supposed to have histamine in our, in our bloodstream. But mast cells, which do float around in the bloodstream, are supposed to keep all of the histamine inside the cell. And so if your DAO enzyme is out of balance, because it's been upregulated by some sort of exogenous toxicity, what we end up seeing is there's high levels of histamine in the blood, in the organs, in the central nervous system which can wreak all kinds of havoc. And so what, and what I think is a common misnomer too is people think that you want to suppress this enzyme altogether. Now we don't, right? Because histamine is basically uh, is a reaction that happens every time we eat. It's kind, of, it's kind of like our body's defense to make sure that we're not eating something that's poisonous. And so it's not that we want to get rid of histamine altogether. We don't want to block it 100%. We just want it to be in the right balance and ratios for our unique individual. And so somebody that may have a DAO mutation can have, you know, 
histamine in their blood that we can test by blood work, or they may have a normal whole blood histamine level on lab work because what's happened is is that all the histamine has already degraded in the blood and is now kind of sticking around in all of these variety of organs. So those are the people that have, you know, constant reactions to foods that they're eating or constant, you know, will get hives when they walk in the perfume aisle in the grocery store or, you know, somebody that gets a headache when, um, you know, the rain is about to come. All those people can, can have problems with the DAO enzyme or a histamine issue. And so it's really important to take a look at this particular enzyme with regard to histamine because we know that histamine, um, if, it, if it's expressed in the brain, can actually hit different areas of the brain and change our personality and our behavior. That's really interesting. I mean, most people think of, of uh, you know, reactions as, of course, hives, rashes, runny nose, red eyes. But um, it's important for parents to know that these histamine reactions can be from behaviors. But then you're, you're back to figuring out what were the triggers. What are some, and I know it varies per individual, but can you give us some really common mm-hmm. um, uh, foods, of course, and environmental triggers as well? Sure. So the the common histamine, you know, perpetrators are are the standard aged cheese, wine, uh, those sorts of things. Now, generally, most of our kids are not drinking wine. At least I would hope not. Um, and certainly, they're not. They don't have the palate developed for something like aged cheese. But what you can the problem with histamine, as you know, is it's kind of it, it it's the American gene, right? The one is good and two is better. So when you get a little reaction with histamine, if that reaction is not addressed from, you know, its organic origin, then what happens is is in many cases those reactions grow and can become literally indiscriminate. So you can have a histamine reaction to a particular chemical that's found on your clothing. You can have a histamine reaction to any of those toxic smells that you smell in the grocery store from all of the cleaning products. That's a pretty common one. And interestingly enough, the reaction that those individuals have is a headache or a stomach ache. It's never on the skin. Right. Yeah, that's good to know. Okay, we are out of time today. Dr. Becker, thank you so much for being here with us. I appreciate your your knowledge, your experience, and um, it would be great if uh, you could come back in the future because we have so many of these things to share with people, uh, with the parents who are out there to work, working very hard to recover their kids from autism. And again, I will link to um, everything that we discussed on the show notes at naturallyrecoveringautism.com. Uh, So again, thank you, Dr. Becker, for being here, and thank you uh, for tuning in, listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week.